John writes in his gospel, uh, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Amazing, isn't it? So many other things that Jesus did. Uh, We have the four Gospels, but there's so much more that Jesus did and said, which we will know only when we pass through the veil into his nearer presence. But he says, these are written. He has compiled these particular stories about Jesus, about his teaching, about his deeds, about his healings, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that through believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is so sure that that's the only way to have life, that he has written this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and that therefore believing in him, we will have life in his name. So today's gospel finds the disciples absolutely petrified behind locked doors, cowering together, The people who are not present, of course, is Judas Iscariot, who has already hanged himself, and Thomas, for whatever reason. We don't know why Thomas is not there. So the remaining disciples are cowering in fear behind locked doors. It's the day of the resurrection. It's the same day that Jesus rose from the dead in the morning. The women had gone to the tomb at sunrise as the sun came up. It's the evening of that same day. Mark you, the women had gone back to the disciples telling them that that they had seen Jesus risen, but the disciples didn't believe the women. And so they're still behind locked doors, afraid of any kind of a knock that might come, that they might be yanked out of the upper room and nailed to a cross just like their master. And through the locked doors, Jesus appears in their midst. The first thing he says to these fearful disciples is, Peace, peace be with you. And the second is that he shows them the marks of the nails and the mark of the spear on his body. He is in a new physicality and evidently they're not expecting somebody, anybody to appear in their midst without opening the door. And it's not a ghost. Luke tells us that. Jesus says to them in Luke's gospel, I'm not a ghost, feel and touch me. In John's gospel, when he appears to them, he wants to make sure that they know that it's him because it's different and yet the same. But the minute that they recognize the marks of his torture, his death, 
then they recognize that it's Jesus because this is a completely different physicality. It is a physical body. It is not an incorporeal body. It's not a ghost. He is fully present in flesh and blood, but it's different. And he needed to show them that it is is indeed he. And it's a resurrected, not a resuscitated body. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Lazarus received a resurrected body when Jesus called him out of the tomb. He was resuscitated. He was made alive again, but in his own mortal body that eventually died. This is different. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Somehow or another, Jesus went through death onto the other side in a resurrected body. Nobody before had done this and nobody since has done this. But it is what happened to Jesus and we hear that it's the first fruits of what will be ours at the end of the age. A fully physical body that is different, that is imperishable, that will never die. It is not mortal, but immortal. And notice this. Jesus' body, this resurrected body, moves comfortably between heaven's dimension, where God is, God's world, and our dimension, our world, earth. And the two, you've heard me say this before, are parallel realm. They're parallel dimensions. Um, anybody who knows Doctor Who and sci-fi kind of maybe, or, or quantum physics maybe has, a, has an idea about this. But Jesus moves between the two in this body. He eats. Um, you can feel the body, but he can appear at will, and he does so. He's not an apparition. He's in a resurrected, passed through death, come out on the other side body. And it's the central point of Peter's sermon in Acts. In fact, it's the central point of the teaching of all of the disciples, including Paul. It's the resurrected Jesus that makes all the difference. If you want to know the gospel encapsulated, go to the entire sermon that Peter preaches in the Acts of the Apostles. We've got a short portion of it here, but it's the gospel. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, he places him in time in the context of where he came from, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. In other words, you all, you saw what he did. He raised Lazarus. He raised the the widow of Nain's son. He healed the man born blind. He healed the paralytic. He healed so many. He taught amazing truths. You were witnesses of all of that, all of those deeds of power and wonders that God did through him. 
But this man, you handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Even though this was God's plan, they are complicit because they did it. And they handed him over to the pagans. They handed him over to Rome, to Caesar, to Pilate, to do with outside of the law. He says, you, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside of the law. They were complicit. His crucifixion was because of them. It's just that they kind of handed him over to Rome who were outside of the law, outside of the Jewish law, outside of Torah for a Jew to be judged outside of the law. This is what they did. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Is that amazing? It was impossible, impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death. Death's grip could not hold Jesus in the tomb. It was impossible. It was God's power that raised him from the dead. And as Peter encounters this risen Lord who has passed through death, Without corruption, in other words, while he was in the tomb, his body did not start to decay. When we die, the cells start to close down, right? And eventually, uh, we are dust. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. But not so with Jesus' body. It did not see any kind of corruption. He was truly dead. He didn't swoon. Uh, The soldiers, their lives depended on making sure that these men were crucified. And when they got to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. They broke the other's legs because the minute the legs of crucified people are broken, they can no longer push up and exhale. So they suffocate. And that's the way they kill them. They didn't need to do that with Jesus and their lives depended on them not letting anybody down from the cross alive. And they pierced his side with a spear. He was fully dead in the tomb. And Peter, seeing a risen Lord, goes back to his prayer book, the prayer book of the Jews, the Psalter. And he now understands this psalm that David had written about somebody in his line, in the Davidic line, down the road, who is the Messiah. And he understands that David had been talking about Jesus, about the resurrection of a Messiah. They hadn't understood it up until then. For he said in the psalm, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the one who will come from his line, his lineage, who will be the Messiah. This is a resurrected Messiah, an utterly dead and yet not corrupted Messiah who came out the other side and that means for Peter that this itinerant carpenter this man from Nazareth who he'd been with for three years is 
the king of Israel. He is King David's greater son. And he's not only the king of Israel, he's the king of the whole world. He's the Messiah. And then dawning revelation, the man whose face he is so familiar with is God's own face. He'd been looking into the face of God for three years. God incarnate walking with his disciples for three years. And when Peter had put all of those pieces together, when the puzzle finally came together, he was no longer a man cowering behind locked doors. You couldn't shut him up. He was without fear because he had to get this message out. Jesus is king. He is king of the whole world. He is the Messiah. He is God. And he has risen from the dead. It's seditious talk. And in those times with pagan overlords, it could lead to death by crucifixion, a traitor's death. But he doesn't care. He's got to get the message out. He won't stop. The Jews try to stop him. He says the stones would cry out. I have to tell people about this Jesus who was dead and is raised. And we know from the traditions in the church that he did eventually go to his death by crucifixion. By crucifixion upside down. But he continued to tell the message, proclaiming the truth of Jesus raised from the dead and what it meant for people who believed and followed Jesus. He'd been commissioned to do this in the upper room. Jesus speaks peace. He shows them his wounds and he gives them a commission. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. I am sending you out to proclaim what I first started to teach you. But he never, he never sends them out in their own strength. In that upper room, before the ascension, he breathes on them his own breath, his own spirit. A down payment of the fullness of the Spirit that will come on them at Pentecost after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He goes before them. He sends them out as the Father has sent him. So he sends them. Because as Peter says, Jesus' resurrection didn't just mean that Jesus was the true king, the Messiah, and God in human flesh, but also that because he'd gone through death, because Jesus had gone through death, his followers would also. 
He says in his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an inheritance that is being kept for us in God's dominion, in his world, in his dimension. That's not that we... Go to heaven when we die and we stay there. Yes, the promise is that when we die, we are in the presence of the Lord. But that's just half of this amazing promise. The next is is that when he returns and claims fully his kingship over the whole earth, then heaven and earth are knit together. And what has been kept for us imperishable in God's dimension will be melded together with the trueness of who we are and we will be given resurrected bodies. That's the imperishable inheritance that we have. In the words of N.T. Wright, at the moment... It's being kept safe, out of sight, behind the thin, invisible curtain which separates our world, earth, from God's world, heaven. But one day, the curtain will be drawn back, and then the incorruptible inheritance at present, being kept safe in heaven, will be merged with our earthly reality, transforming it and soaking it through with God's presence, love, and mercy and it's God himself who protects this inheritance and us through our faith in other words it's freely available but it's received through faith it's available for all it's received through faith the faith in Jesus Christ again Peter Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's the faith that Jesus commends in the upper room. Remember, Thomas wasn't there. When he comes back, he says, not going to believe I need proof I need to see with my own eyes put my finger in those wounds I need proof and a week later they're again behind closed doors but we don't hear that they're locked this time and Thomas is with them and Jesus comes and he says here Thomas you needed proof Put your finger here. See? It's me. I've passed through death. In a new life. Resurrected life. And then he says, You've needed to see, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. That's all of us who believe, 
Jesus said, you are blessed. Blessed are you who believe and have not seen. How do we come to believe? How do we come to faith? I have my story. You have your stories. Maybe we'll have a chance to be sharing some of those over the next few weeks. Each of us had somebody in their lives who introduced them to Jesus. How do we come to believe? How is it that we say that we have the faith that Jesus commends? Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this. So how are they to call on someone when they haven't believed in him? And how are they to believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear without someone announcing it to them? And how will people make that announcement unless they are sent? You see, Jesus did not just send those disciples out from that upper room. As the Father sent me, so I send you. He sends all of us. That's for all of us. As the Father sent me, so I send you, all of you, out to share the word. Sometimes uh, people will ask the clergy, um, what have you been doing to get more people into the church? Um, Normally, when I'm asked that question, I will say, How many people did you invite to church this week? Because it's not just the job of the clergy. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The disciples and the disciples that the disciples discipled. And on through the ages. This is never a faith that we get to keep just for ourselves because it feels really good to be in that place and to know that we're saved through faith and that we've received forgiveness of sins and that we have a resurrected life awaiting for us. That's all true. But what kind of a paltry inheritance is being held safe for us if we are not proclaiming as Peter did the Jesus who is raised from the dead, and that people can also receive that new life in him, forgiveness of sins. John Stott, English theologian, wrote this, Biblical preaching and teaching on such topics as prayer and evangelism I take to be indispensable. But in such practical activities, a grasp of the theory is not enough. We can learn to pray only by praying, especially in a prayer group. And we can learn to evangelize only by going out with a more experienced Christian, either to witness on a street corner or to visit in some homes. Moreover, it is by active membership in the body of Christ that we learn the meaning of the church, which is described in the New Testament. A fellowship meeting is a happening in which the individual is accepted welcomed and loved 
Then, abstract concepts of forgiveness, reconciliation, and forgiveness take on a concrete form. And preached truth comes to life. Peter said there will be suffering in this world. Not a one of us will go through this life without some kind of suffering. Who do you know who needs the peace that Jesus brings in the midst of suffering? Who do you know who needs the hope of new life through life in the one who conquered death and the grave? Peter said, always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you and to do it gently. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Amen.